I hate to interrupt fellowship and good conversations, but I've got an agenda. So <laughs> let's pray. Father, we bow before you and thank you for, once again, your presence in our lives in this place tonight. Father, I pray that you would help us tonight go through these principles in your word and glean the truth as the Holy Spirit leads us into the truth of your word. Father, I pray for each family that's represented here tonight, whether in this building or the other buildings with children or teenagers, that you would bless them in a very real way because of their presence here. Father, it's my prayer that what is said tonight would honor you and glorify you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Scott was on the schedule to do, to begin uh, a two-lesson series on family worship, but before I started last week, he took me to the side and he said, you know, Morris, I've looked at your notes. He said, you got six and a half pages. And he said, would you like to take another week and kind of break the lesson into two parts? And I was like, well, I think I can cover it. And he said, I know. He said, every time you do this, you always have six, five, six, seven pages, and you always get it done, and I don't know how you do it. He said, but if you want to just take another night, I can, we can do that. I said, well, let me, let me see how, how it goes. So I actually felt like I just relaxed a lot more last week and, and covered about two-thirds of the notes that I had. So Scott said, well, just go ahead and take another night. I was like, okay. So um, I started preparing this week, and I now have six and a half pages of notes. <laughs> so, so I'm, gonna have to, I'm, gonna have, no, I'm not going to have to hurry. We'll, we'll get through it in what we do. Uh, but I want to ask you to turn to Matthew 18, uh, beginning in verse 15. And we're going to read uh, between, we're going to read Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Now again, in this passage, we're looking at the principles of church discipline. And this is a situation, you know, the context, Jesus is talking here um, about sin and in verse 15 it says if your brother sins and here Jesus is talking about an absolutely known offense this isn't a question mark this is when there is an offense so he says if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you have gained your brother but if he does not listen take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Uh, so I want to review a little bit of what we've covered the last two weeks with some questions. To what ministry are every one of us as Christ followers, what ministry are we called to? Reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So this is not just for a few, quote-unquote, well-trained people to work through reconciliation. Every one of us, as Christ followers, are called to a ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're to be doing. Okay, in, in our culture today, United States, Western Hemisphere, 2016, in the evangelical church, just kind of across our culture, why is church discipline not being carried out effectively? It is in some cases, but in a lot of cases it's not. Why, why is it, we talked about last week, that churches will not invoke church discipline okay fear of repercussions what else were you going to say yeah there's a fear of repercussions there's a desire to grow large churches um what what could some of the repercussions be 
That could be a lawsuit. No, I'm, I'm looking at two attorneys here. We're, <laughs> we're, we live in a litigious society, and, and a lot of people sue. I mean, there may be more. I don't think I missed one. Anyway, if there's more attorneys here, please forgive me. But anyway, I know that I, I spot the two immediately almost. Um, so there, there's a fear of, of that. There's also just a fear of unpleasant events. You know, because how many of us truly enjoy, no, I don't want to ask that. that. That may open a can of worms. How many of us really enjoy discipline? I started to say how many of us enjoy, enjoy pain. I don't want to go there. <laughs> okay. right. Discipline involves painful events. You know, none of us, you know, I don't, I don't like pain. Pain hurts. You know, if you didn't know that, you know, there's, there's a little gold nugget for you tonight. You know, discipline always enjoy, always involves unpleasant events when we discipline our children. There's something that happens in their little lives that they're not happy about. You know, whether it's a, a spanking or a timeout or a toy gets taken away you know, or something like that happens, you know, it involves something that's unpleasant. Um, there's also a loss of authority in the church. People don't recognize the authority of the leadership of the church any longer. Not, not across the board. In some places... That does happen. But in a large, a large percentage of the place, it doesn't. And then there's, you know, Robert mentioned that there's a, a, you know, a fear of consequences. One of the consequences may be, what if the person that's coming under discipline is, the, is one of the largest financial contributors? And you remove that person from fellowship, do you think they're going to keep giving money? You know, from a place they've been removed? Probably not. So they can make... They can make a big divot in, in the financial structure of, of the fellowship. You know, so people, people have a lot of fear about that. Yeah, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about tonight. And it's, it's uh, a lot of times we look at den- we 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 approach conflict with the denial, and that that that's kind of what you're talking. Well, it'll get better by itself. No, it probably won't. It is, and Jerry was talking about, you know, when you, if you grow up in a church that this is never practiced, then you go someplace that it is, it's like, well, I mean, it, it's almost like getting blindsided, you know, on a football field. You don't see it coming, and it knocks you off your feet. You know, I was 31 years old before I ever heard Matthew 18 taught. I'd never heard the principles of church discipline taught, and I grew up in First Baptist Church, Fort Stockton, and then went to Brownwood and went to churches there, and then Kendra and I, you know, Kendra and I met, and we went to churches, and Never heard anything, never heard a sermon out of Matthew 18. Never even heard it referred to. And on I was 31, in 1986, y'all can do the math later. In 1986, when I was 31, um, I finally heard it taught. You know, and it is such a vital part and a tool that, that Jesus gave us for the church. That's why I have such a passion to teach this, this principle. I'm not the only one. I mean, Scott's talked about it, Ben's talked about it, Brad's talked about it, but... Uh, you know, when they asked me what I'd like to teach, I said, I'd really like to go through this again because it's been, you know, four or five years since I've had the opportunity to, to go through these principles. And then having gone through the Peacemakers training three weeks ago, and there were just so many other tools that, that I learned there, it just added to it. Okay. Why can we count on the fact that discipline can work? Or what are the facts that we can count on that discipline will work? Say it again. God's word said it does. Yeah. God commands it. In fact, he doesn't just say, you might consider, you know, if your brother sins, you might consider 
one of these days, possibly thinking about the eventuality of maybe going and talking to that person. <laughs> didn't say that. He said, if your brother sins, go. You know, and, and again, the word go is the word hupago. You go quietly. You go one-to-one. You don't draw attention to yourself. But it's not a suggestion. It's, if your brother sins, go. Right. It, it's a commandment. So God commands it. God provides it. Like Scott pointed out, it says it in the Bible. God provides it as a gift to the New Testament church. So because he provided it for us, we're to use it. And the third thing is that God wants it. Because again, what is, and, and, and we'll see that, we'll see that little uh, expanding, I don't know what that cone, whatever it is, that diagram here in a minute. Um, but it starts with self-discipline and then one-to-one. Each one of those steps, what is the goal of each step? To reconcile. Even step five, when someone is removed from fellowship, the goal in that is reconciliation. Now, that may sound kind of weird because you've just removed them from fellowship and you've told them, okay, you, 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 you can't belong here. You've got to go out into the world. And that's a hard statement. But still, the goal is reconciliation because when they, when they get out there, they miss that relationship with the body of Christ. They miss what God is doing. And because that's gone, that can then draw them back in. So that process, even in that step, is about reconciliation. It's never about getting rid of someone. If in anybody's mind in that process that's going through that, if in their mind they're thinking, man, I'll be glad when we get rid of this one. Uh, that person needs to step back, spend some time with God, repent of that attitude, and maybe even recuse themselves from the process because they've had the wrong attitude in that. Or at least get that straight, get the log out of their eye so that they can then move forward. Because again, it has to be the same attitude that we have when we discipline our children. You know, and if, if your child has messed up and you're thinking, oh, man, I'm going to get them today. Just wait till that kid gets home. I'm going to wear him out. And you're looking forward to doing that? You've, if you follow through on that, you've just crossed the line from loving correction to abuse. And that line shouldn't be easy to cross. Okay, so for those of us who really love our children and now our grandchildren... When we have to discipline them, there needs to be a gut check. There needs to be that wrenching, man, I wish I could do anything besides this. I wish I didn't have to do this. And that needs to be the same attitude when we're going through church discipline. Okay, now, are there sins that require discipline and sins that do not require discipline? You know, if I had a whiteboard up here, if I, was, if I was being a teacher and I had a whiteboard, I'd make a list of major sins and minor sins. Say it one more time. Yeah, yeah. And so you're talking about overlooking offenses? Is that what yeah. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit later, but... You can't overlook some offenses, but let's, let's, let's think about are there major sins and minor sins? Okay, you jumped in real quick with that. Why do you say no? Well, sin of omission is an omission. The omission sometimes is because you don't know. That's more reason why you should know. You are punished for sinning out of unknowing. Yeah, see... And, and I did this with the youth group one time at Ridgecrest, and Patrick may have been in that group. I don't know. I don't think, I don't think you were old enough to be in that group yet. <laughs> but I, I had the guys that said, okay, let's list major sins over here. And it was, you know, it was basically the Ten Commandments. You know, they listed those. And then what are, what are minor sins? Well, okay, cheating on a test. So we had them in the minor list. And so they had a pretty good list of minor sins. And I said, okay, guys, I'm gonna congr- we need to congratulate each other because we've just done in five minutes Something that God never did. And they looked at me real, they, they never were quite sure where I was going to take things. Is that right, Brent? 
<laughs> Britt was one of those guys that grew up too. So anyway, um, <clears throat> God never classifies sin as major or minor. We tend to do that. You know, we think, you know, and, and, and I'll try to mimic Ben. It's a wee little white lie. Just those little bitty things that, well, you know, it's not a big lie. It's a little white lie. You know, and that's one of the things that I grew up thinking, you know, that that one's not so bad. I can kind of skate on that. You know, but again, we need to concentrate on why church discipline has ever begun in the first place. It's not the sin itself. So it's not major or minor sin that, 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 that starts the process of discipline. It's the refusal to repent. That's what begins the process of church discipline. It's not the sin, and it's not trying to classify sin as major or minor. God hates all sin, period. So it's the refusal to repent that starts the discipline. Okay. Now, just this week on Monday night, did anybody else catch the Fox 4 News Monday night at 9 o'clock to see what happened at Watermark Community Church? Anybody, has anybody heard about it? I see a couple of nods going. Okay. Uh, and I don't, I caught it right at the end. Jeff Willingham said, hey, turn on Fox 4 News. So I missed the name of the guy that was being interviewed. I don't know if it was the pastor or one of the elders, but they were interviewing him about something that happened a year ago. And Watermark Community Church removed a young man from fellowship because of a continued non-repentance and sin. Um, and so then a year later, October the 9th, 2016, this young man posted a letter on his Facebook page, and there's all kinds of turmoil. I mean, if you go there and look at it, there's pages of responses. And I read through about, I spent about five minutes, and I thought, I don't need to read anymore. It's just going to be more of the same. You know, some people taking... The church's side, some people saying, oh, the church is harsh and it's, you know, wrong and, you know, on and on. The sin that was involved was the young man had been struggling with, with same-sex relationships for a number of years. He had been walking with the church and walking with some men there, moving away from that sin, and he finally decided, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I want to live that lifestyle. And so after, after a number of meetings... Then he finally, he walked away from the table. He walked away from the, from the church. And they formally removed him from fellowship. Um, but his letter, and I'm just going to read just a couple of excerpts from his letter that, that went on Facebook. He said, Dear Watermark Community Church, Today I celebrate a very interesting anniversary with you. It was exactly one year ago when I told you that I was no longer worthy to, that you told me, that I was no longer worthy to serve, be in a community group, and be a member of your church. You say our, quote-unquote, sin is not unique, but you treat us in a unique manner. This is unacceptable behavior. We are, we are actual people that have actual feelings. Thank you for removing yourself from my life. I am who God made me to be, I cannot change my sexual orientation, and nor would I want to. I now have internal peace and happiness unlike ever before. Okay, that's just a part of his letter. Okay. Watermark Community Church then replied on Fox 4 News and in the Dallas Morning News on the opinion page, and they offered the following explanation. Again, this is just parts. This, this explanation is like three pages long, but I'm just going to read a, few, a couple of paragraphs. And they say, recently one of our former members posted a letter he received from some close friends and the leadership of our church informing him that his membership status had been removed. We would like to take the opportunity to address this situation and offer clarity to those seeking answers and understanding. As we've previously shared, following the example of Jesus, Watermark loves and welcomes people of all backgrounds, economic statuses, ethnicities, sexual orientations and struggles. Also following Jesus' example, we encourage people to turn away from sin and to follow Jesus. In regard to the specific letter currently on social media and the subsequent commentary on it, we would like to share a few things that have been misrepresented. 
before he ever received this letter, some of his closest friends and then leaders at Watermark met face-to-face -face with him numerous times to understand how to best love and serve him. In those meetings, it became increasingly clear that he no longer believed same-sex sexual activity was inappropriate for a follower of Jesus Christ. And he also made it clear that he no longer desired the help, care, and encouragement we were seeking to provide. Like any member whose beliefs move away from the core commitments, biblical convictions, and values of Watermark, it became apparent to formally change his, it became appropriate to formally change his membership status. However, we continue to express to him that he is loved and is always welcome to attend Watermark. Now, he goes on with some other things, and, and, and again, they, they explain in detail. But the, the commentator, the reporter that was questioning this individual from Watermark, basically kind of summarized it and said, well, because you have these stated beliefs in the Bible and someone moves against that, then you have the authority in your church's governance to remove them from fellowship. And the, the guy said, yeah, that's exactly right. And that was the end of the report, basically. You know, so this is just a prime example and obviously recent because that was just two nights ago that this was on the news and it's still still in the news these are some things that we may well be facing in our church you know with with uh, you know just with the status quo and things that are going on those things are there to to protect cross point um and in the the uh, family meeting that went on and they were talking scott was talking about the policy and procedures manual, we've had to cover this very situation, our policies and procedures, so that we can, we can have some legal status to make a stand when this happens. Um, you know, the, the winds of change in our society continually blow, just one, one time to the next, one time to the next one. You know, it, you know, it, it's situational ethics, whatever the popular vote is, that then becomes what's right. Uh, and for people who choose to stand on the authority and the non-changing promises and truth of God's word, you know, we're going to face some difficult, some difficult times. So we need to be ready, and that's why we're talking about conflict. Okay. Now, based on what we've seen and based on even this situation that's going on over at Watermark Church, what are the results of church discipline? When you discipline, there is a separation between the church and the world. You know, now, we're in the world, and we're to live in the world. But we're not to be of the world. Okay, so with the discipline that God provides us in His Word and how we're to walk, we're to look different than the world. Because if we look just like the world, what, what draw is there for people to come to God? There is none. So while we are in the world, we're a part of the world, we're not to be of the world. So there's a, there's a separation, there's a division between God's people and the world in terms of how we act, how we react, how we respond, what we do, what we choose not to do. The second result of church discipline is it purges the people. You know, Jesus talked about you know, removing the, the leaven from the lump of dough. Because if we don't remove it, the whole lump of dough becomes leavened. And in, in that picture in God's economy, it's worthless, it's useless. It has to be thrown out. Keep in mind the story that we talked about last week of Exodus 32 and the incident of the golden calf in verse 25. The people were let loose by Aaron. Moses had been up, Moses had been up on the mountain for 40 days getting the law from God. They hadn't seen him. They had heard the rumblings. You know, the people were terrified by the rumblings of God. They wanted, you know, ben, I think it was Ben that pointed out, you know, in, in a sermon past, the people wanted a safe God, one that didn't rumble at them. And so they had this golden calf. And Aaron actually put it together for them. And it didn't rumble at them. It was, it was quiet, it had ears, you know, but it, it, didn't, it didn't make any sounds. And so they were, they were more content with a golden calf. But because Aaron didn't discipline the people when they came to him, initially, 
starting to move and get off in the ditch, then the subsequent discipline that came after was much more severe. And I think it was a number like 3,000 people were, were killed that day you know, because they still wanted to go with the golden calf when Moses came back. So there's, there's a purging of the people. If we don't discipline ourselves and if we don't live in discipline, then God will discipline. Okay. Um, if you put that first slide up, Cody. Ah, there it is. Now, there's a little bit of a change. I added the last step. <laughs> you know, I don't know how I never had it on there before. I think the first time I did that, I literally didn't have room on the, on the page. And it was messing up the formatting. Well, you know, computers change, you know, programs change. So I was able to actually get this on there. We've talked about the first five steps of self-discipline going one-on-one, one or two others. That's the informal steps of, of church discipline. We enter then into the formal if there's a continued refusal to repent that it's taken to the church. First of all, to the elders, then to the body. If, if, if he refuses to repent and listen to the church, even then he's removed from fellowship and he's treated as a heathen, as a tax gatherer. As a, you know, as, and that's being of the world. Now tonight we're going to talk about step number six. And this has been the goal and the prayer all along. You know, through every step, the goal has been restoration and reconciliation. It's never been about getting rid of someone. Keep that in mind, please. You know, every step through the process of this loving correction, as Watermark refers to it, that's where I got that phrase, Watermark referred to it as loving correction. I thought, that's cool. You know, and that really describes what we do with our children, whether it's a timeout or a spanking, whatever, it's loving correction. Same thing in the church. Okay, but we, we move now to this prayed-for conclusion, that's reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 8, God's Word said, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, and not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So Paul is talking about someone who has been removed from fellowship and has now come back. And Paul is saying, you've got to restore him. Don't continue to hold him out there at a distance because he could be overwhelmed by that. So this is looking at that reconciliation. Now, the pathway to restoration of the one turning, returning to the flock begins with what? Okay, I heard two things. I heard repentance and what else? Okay. Um, there's actually something. That's part of something else, but it really starts before that. And that's called confession. Thank you. It took me a while to get it there, but I, you know, First John one nine says, "If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." We follow that same pattern in restoring someone and reconciling someone to a right relationship in in the fellowship. Okay, it starts with a confession. Now, now there are seven A's of confession. When Ben and Scott went to the peacemakers. Christy, went, what, did they go four years ago? Okay, I think, it's, I think it was four, somewhere around in there. I don't know exactly, but it's been a while. Yeah, and they came back, and I don't remember if it was Ben or Scott. I think it was maybe Scott that talked about the seven elements of a good confession. And I loved that, you know. I mean, I was taking notes and, and going through all this, and, and I have taught a lot of these principles just through the years in counseling. But I realized I had forgot. I, I, I had five points. I missed two. And so I'm like, ooh, I like those, so I'm, I'm writing them down. Um, so if you'd put slide number two up, Cody. These are the seven A's of a good confession. First of all, in a good confession, the person has to address every person involved in the offense, including God. Okay, so if, if someone is removed from fellowship, and they've, ex they've experienced that sting of removal, and they want to come back, now keep in mind, they've gone through a very formal process of removing this person from fellowship. This was not a backdoor revival that my mom talked about used to happen in, 
in their church when she was a little girl of just getting rid of people. Okay. Um, it was a very formal process that they went through. Guess what? Restoring someone needs to be just as formal. And it needs to be on the same level that the removal took place. So if they come back to confess, they need to have the opportunity and the privilege of standing before the congregation, the body. Okay. This isn't done on Sunday mornings when visitors and stuff are here. This is done in a family meeting. But they need to, they need to have the privilege and the opportunity to stand before the body and say, this is what I've done. And to confess. Okay. That's, that's, uh, that's one step of good confession. The confession needs to have the right words. Three of the wrong words are if, but, and maybe. You know. The confession can't sound like, well, you know, if I did this, then, yeah, no. <laughs> it can't be, well, I did this, but, and then try to rationalize their actions. Or maybe, if I would have done this, maybe that wouldn't happen. You know, no, that, that, that's not a good confession. Those words need to be out of that. It needs to be a, it needs to be a real, truthful honest, and looking at the next point, specific confession. It can't be, well, you know, three or four months ago, I, you know, I kind of got off track and I kind of slipped off in the ditch and I made some bad choices and some people were probably hurt and, you know, I had a bunch of guys talk to me and yeah, I, I decided I need to come back and confess all those things, so I'm, I'm sorry. Can you feel the sincerity in that? <laughs> no, no, it's not that at all. It can't be that. It's got to be very specific and not spoken in generalities. Okay? Because if it was done properly, the removal and the lack of repentance, it was very specific in that first process. So coming back, it needs to also be very specific. Right, the fourth one is to acknowledge the hurt in the, in the other people that you may have caused, that that person caused. I know doing this, I hurt, and maybe, and, and naming the people that are maybe are there, and hurt the congregation, and guess what? Sullied God's name by their choices. So that confession needs to be very real, and it needs to be very specific, and owning their responsibility of the hurt. Number five, they have to be willing to accept the consequences. Okay, when you forgive someone of an offense, is it appropriate for there still to be consequences after the forgiveness? Yes. <laughs> okay, Jessica said, yes. Okay, why? And, and that's true. I mean, and I'll, I don't want to put Jessica on the spot, but I'll, I'll go ahead and explain it from my perspective. You know, when, when there's an offense and when there's hurt and when there's sin, there's, there's consequences of that. Forgiveness doesn't erase all of that immediately it may take time to work through that and there may be some things that are not worked through this side of heaven okay um, but if the person is truly repentant and coming in and they're willing to accept the consequences and they work through it bit by bit step by step because when when you're looking at a major offense like that trust gets shattered now, and I, I remember one time demonstrating this to, to a youth group where I had this really nice, it was a really cheap vase from Walmart, but it was kind of, you know, it was pretty. You know, it was about that big. And I put it down in a, in a, 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 a paper grocery sack and I had a two-pound sledgehammer. I said, let me show you what shattered trust looks like. <laughs> and I dropped it and it, you know, and it, I mean, it was just shattered pieces of that vase. That's what happens when trust is broken. And it takes a long time to put it back together. You know, so the consequences of an offense may linger for a long time, but it lingers not to continue to press them down with guilt, but to know that it, just, it may take time to work through those consequences. And you do it a little bit at a time. Okay. And the person that comes back in repentance needs to be willing 
for those consequences to be there and to work through those in the right way. Okay. Number six, the sixth A of the good confession is altering the behavior. Okay. And that's called repentance. Okay. And that, that's, you know, that's where that comes in. And repentance looks like this. If I'm going this way towards sin, I have to stop. Okay. Is that repentance? Okay. I turn around, I turn away from the sin. Is that repentance? No. I have to pursue godliness. I have to go the opposite direction. That's repentance. Okay. It's not just stopping. It's not just stopping and turning. It's stopping, turning, and pursuing godliness and holiness rather than the sin. That's what repentance looks like. Then, when the behavior is, is being altered and there's repentance being evidenced, then the person can ask for forgiveness and using those words. Okay, and, and, and this is not about jumping through semantic hula hoops or anything like that. You know, but what do we typically do if we offend someone and, and we're trying to make it right? We say, I'm sorry. Okay. Should we even be saying those words? What am I communicating when I say, Robert, if I say to you, Robert, I'm sorry, what have I just communicated to you? No? That's not what it means. That I'm a sorry person. Okay, that's what those words mean. It has nothing to do with forgiveness. Not in reality. It's become a colloquial term to mean something kind of like that, but it doesn't. What it truly communicates, if I say, I'm sorry, I'm saying that I have absolutely no value. And as a called, blood-bought child of God, and the righteousness of Christ was added to my life, the holiness of Christ was added to my life, the justification of Christ was added to my life, the glorification of Christ was added to my life, and the sanctification of Christ is being added to my life, and I'm being changed day by day by day. Because of what Jesus did for me, I have value. And if I say, I'm sorry, those simple words have just denied all that Christ did for me. Think about it. It's what those words are communicating. And, but to say, I'm sorry, when there's an offense, we'll go, go back to Robert again. If I've offended Robert and I say, I'm sorry, then your reply would be what? Well, you might be a special person saying that. Most people would just say, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it because th there's really not a question there. Now, if we're walking rightly with God, we'll know what to say. But if I say then, will you forgive me? That's a very specific and direct question, and it requires a very specific and direct response, which would be what Robert said. Yes, I forgive you. Yes, sir. Well, if the words, will you please forgive me, is there, I think that's fine. But again, God tells us that we're held accountable for every idle word that we say. Even if we don't intend to deny what God's done in our lives, saying I'm sorry literally does. That's what those words mean. Okay, so we have to be, let's be biblically correct. And again, this is not about jumping through hoops. Because then... You know, if you ask somebody, you know, if you go through a good confession and you ask them, will you forgive me? If they've never heard that before, they're going to wonder, where did this come from? And that can create a teachable moment. And the gospel can be furthered through that. Okay. The same, the same thing with the phrase, I apologize. Again, that, that really doesn't communicate anything. But by saying, this is where I was wrong, will you forgive me? Bang. I mean, there's, there's an immediate response. And as Christians, what is our response to anyone that asks for forgiveness? Yeah. Do we have the option of saying no? Oh, uh, that takes some conversation. Okay. And, and I say that not, not flippantly, but when does God forgive us? 
when we confess, part of confession is repentance. Keep in mind, God never forgave in the absence of repentance. Throughout the Bible, he doesn't. Okay, so when do we forgive other people? When they ask for forgiveness and when they begin to demonstrate repentance. Now that process of forgiving, because it can be a process, it is an, it is an immediate statement of, yes, I forgive you. Working through the consequences is walking with them and working through that walk of, of behavior change. Okay. But, I mean, if, if the person is still doing exactly what they've done before and they say, you know, I was wrong, will you forgive me? But they're still doing it? That's not repentance. And you can say, you know, when God forgives, when God forgives, it's always in the face of repentance. We need to talk about what repentance looks like in this situation. And again, there can be a gospel growth and a gospel movement opportunity there to teach that person what repentance looks like. Not to talk down at them, but to enlighten them and to illuminate the truth of God's word. Okay. So there, there is so much that can happen good in this process working through people with conflict. So that's why we have to work through the conflict. I'm going to need a fourth week. <laughs> I don't think Scott's going to give it to me, though. Okay. Now. Can I just say, Lord, that might be difficult to say I'm, I'm wrong, will you forgive me? And then have it be a teaching moment at the, at the same time. Oh, by the way, I'm sure to the gospel as well because I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, 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 yeah, it may not be that instant. Yeah, it may not be in that instant, okay, but in that process, and that's why I was talking about the process. Through that process, they may ask, you know, there was something different going on here. What is that? So as you're walking through that, and again, when you're, we need to back up and look at Matthew 18 again. Who is this talking about using this with? Brothers. Brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not, we, we might be able to use some of these principles with the world, but we shouldn't expect these kind of responses because they're of the world. Okay, so we're really talking about this within the fellowship, okay, within the body of believers. I think there's a misconception in society relative to Christianity that you may be trite relative to what you have done, but the consequences of it, you're not ready to accept the consequences, nor is there really a repentant heart to move away from it. Like, mm -hmm. Oh, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's true. We set ourselves up to say, we're Christian, we are forgiven people. Yeah, yeah, too. Okay, so I'm, I'm sorry, say that again. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's it, it, it. Yeah, it's it's a perfect opportunity for a gospel moment. Now you may not be able to. You know, I need to repent. Now let me tell you about Jesus. You know, no, it's not. But you know, if if that's the beginning, that could then start more conversations later, is because again they're not used to hearing that, and that'll cause them to step back. You know, look at you like like you've got purple hair. Or two heads. It's like, what planet do you come off of? And I've even had that question asked. Where'd you come from? <laughs> so, well, you know, let's work through this. I don't want this to, to, to impact our relationship. You know, and they may choose not to do that, but we've made an effort, and there may be seed planted there that comes back and, and produces something later. There's always that possibility. Now, there's one more thing in, in, in that reconciliation process. There may be a time that restitution is necessary. Okay, restitution is just a real fancy word for payback. Okay, if someone sins and they're removed from the church and they come back and maybe they've run from the church, you know, maybe they've, maybe they've committed a, a criminal act and they run from the church and 
through that process, they're removed from the church and then they come back. And do we then advise that person? And you know, part of the part of the confession is accepting the consequences. Would you consider, you know, turning yourself in because there's still warrants out for your arrest? You know, and folks, I've seen that happen two different times in the last 10 years where someone's they, they, they come back. And men said, you know, we accept your, you know, we accept your, uh, you know, your confession. Um, we've got these legal aspects that need to be dealt with, you know, and lovingly help that person see that it's their responsibility to deal with those consequences. And in two different occasions that I've seen in the last, well, it's been about the last 12 years now, uh, the individual saying, yeah, would you, would you take me to the police station? And those men drove him to the police station in both occasions, two different people, two different circumstances, went to the police station, turned themselves in, and went to jail. But they, they sat in jail, they served their sentence, they came out, and they, they served the Lord while they were in jail and came out serving the Lord. But they came out free. It is. Yeah. And restitution is an Old Testament process. We see it in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus. And, you know, but it's also this side of the cross as well. It's not just an Old Testament principle. Restitution works on this side. You know, and it could be something significant like a criminal act in jail time. It could involve two crescent wrenches. In 2002, I went through uh, an experience with you know, directed by Sam Douglas, pastor of Ridgecrest, uh, of going through what he referred to as the sin list and, and asking God to search me and show me things in my life that I needed to either confess or be cleansed of. And of all the things that came to mind, there was a bunch of things that came to mind, but of all, of, of one, all the things that came to mind, at least in the moment, the goofiest seemed to be thinking of two 12-inch crescent wrenches I had hanging on my wall in my garage on my, above my tool bench. Okay. Kendra and I graduated from Howard Payne in 1980 in Brownwood, and I had worked for Brownwood TV Cable Company for five years. They provided me a pickup. I worked every afternoon and on Saturdays. I'd been climbing poles since I was a freshman in high school. My dad taught me to climb. He worked for the power company. I had my own climbing tools. I had some of my hand tools. I did not have the two 12-inch crescent wrenches. I needed to work on stuff up on the pole. And so the company bought those for me. And for five years, I used them. They were in my pickup. They were in my tool bag. So in May of 1980, when Kendra and I were getting ready to leave Brownwood, I packed up my tool bag, and I stole those two 12-inch crescent wrenches. Now, in May of 1980, I wasn't thinking, <laughs> I'm stealing these. I'd used them for five years. I just decided they were mine. And in 2002, God showed me, nope, you stole them. So I had to return them. And I had to write a letter to the manager of Brownwood TV Cable Company confessing that I stole them 22 years before um, and asked for forgiveness. And she called me. And through that process, because I knew this lady at the time, she was the daughter of the owner of the cable company. And when she came in in December of 79, just six months before we left, um, she was not a nice person. She just wasn't. You know? And I was glad to leave that job. And so when I'm talking to her on the phone, I'm thinking, you know, I really don't want to talk to you. <laughs> I didn't think about that relationship. I didn't think that she'd still be there. Um, but as she forgave me about the two crescent wrenches and what we were going to do from there, uh, she said, no more, I need to ask you to forgive me. She said, when I, when I came to the cable company in December 79, she said, I was not a nice person. And I didn't say anything. She said, you, you, can, it, you can agree with me. And I'm like, Yep, you were not a nice person. She said, she said, okay, that's enough. And she said, but what you don't know is what was going on in the background. She said, you, you know probably that my name is different now than it was. My last name is different now. I said, yeah. So she had, had she had been married at the time. What she then explained to me was every day when they went home, because her husband worked with her at the cable company, he beat her every single day. 
And he would do so in places that wouldn't show. You know, so she wore high neck, long sleeve, floor length Western dresses. And that was the style in 80, but also covered all the bruises. Because of what was going on, she was a miserable person and she just communicated that to others. And she had since, I mean, he finally slipped and hit her square in the face and broke her nose in an eye socket. And I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Went to jail for a number of other things, but that also. Um, but God had brought somebody else into her life. She had three kids that were going to church there in, in Brownwood. And she said, Morris, I thought I'd confess to everyone that I knew in that time period. And she said, when I saw your name on that box, I knew I needed to confess to you and ask, ask you to forgive me. So over two goofy 12-inch crescent wrenches, God fixed a relationship that I had no idea that was going to happen. So you never know what it's going to do. You, you never know what God's going to do. But, okay, I got to get this done. All right, we'll move on. When we do get into a conflict, and notice I say when we do, not if. Um, and if you put that next slide up, brother. You've seen this before, the slippery slope. But last time we talked about the slippery slope of idolatry. This is just called the slippery slope. And staying on top of conflict. The slippery slope is used again in this principle because when we're involved in conflict with another person, we can easily slide to one side or the other. You know, if you've ever driven on the little shortcut between Jack Finney Boulevard and Traders Road, Patrick's smiling back there. <laughs> if you've ever done that on, that on that old black dirt gumbo road, that, the dirt we have here, even with a little bit of rain, it gets really slick. And it's real hard to stay on the road. It's got pretty deep ditches on either side. You know, and I know several that have gone down that road. And Mr. Feasel has been kind enough to pull several out of that situation with a really long rope. Okay, so that's kind of the picture of this slippery slope. If you think about that, that old black road and why you never want to go down it when it's wet. Okay, now, on one side, and we'll start over here on the left, in, in that bluish gray side, that's called the escape responses or peace faking, F-A-K-I-N-G. Okay. And you move to the left. If you start sliding off that in a conflict, the first, the first part of it there is denial. Okay, and guys are really good at this. You know, if we don't think about the problem, it doesn't exist. Okay, so that's peace faking. Oh, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. No, no, no. I didn't, even know, I didn't even hear what you said the other day. Everything's fine. But you're sitting there boiling on the inside. Okay, that's peace faking. And that's not going to work because then it, it, it moves on down then to flight and you run away. You run away from the relationship or you run away from the conflict. Nothing's resolved. And the individual that's involved in that may wonder, where did where'd Morris go? You know, well, I've run. Then if it gets bad enough, it slips on down to, and that's kind of blurry there, but it says suicide. Okay, so that can be suicide of a relationship, or if it's, if it's a bad enough conflict, and it's eaten on the, the individual, it can turn into a real physical suicide. Okay, so we don't want to go there. So that's the slippery slope in the peace faking, or the escape responses. Over on the right-hand side, or the attack responses, or the peace-breaking responses. And those responses start with assault. And it's literal assault. I mean, because if you're in conflict, and you get worked up about something, and you see the person, and they smile at you, and you pop them right between the eyes. Okay, that's assault. Can't do that. Because then it can move from assault very quickly to litigation, and you go to the courtroom and everything is decided for you. And other people are in, in charge of your life. And if, it, if it's not resolved there, it can then turn that last point on peace breaking is murder. And it could be a literal murder or it could just be a murder of bitterness and anger in your heart. And neither one of those. Neither the peace Faking or the peace breaking are appropriate responses of what we should be doing. Rather, we should be in the middle, okay, and staying in the middle. Now, I told Christy earlier that we'd be talking about this. 
um, the first step in the peacemaking here in the middle on the left-hand side is to overlook. Overlooking an offense is a very real biblical response to a conflict with some conditions. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense make, makes one slow to anger, and it is, it is, his, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Okay, so we can't overlook offenses. All right, Cody, if you put up slide number four. These are, some, these are three of the, the qualifications in overlooking an offense. And if all of the following statements are true, you can truly overlook the offense. Number one, the offense has not created a wall between you and the other person. It has not caused you to feel negatively toward him or her for more than a short period of time. Okay, it's, it's just, it, it's kind of been a quick thing, but you're starting to work through it. Secondly, the offense is not causing serious harm of the offender to others or to God's reputation. Okay, it's not impacting the reputation. You can overlook that. Third, the offense is isolated and not part of a destructive pattern of behavior. Again, you can overlook that. Really the bottom line of these three things, if the offense is not a relationship-breaking offense, it can be overlooked. Okay. If it is a relationship-breaking offense, you've got to then move through the rest of these steps. And moving from left, right. If we'll go back to that other, to the, to the, the piece, the slippery slope. Thank you. From here to overlook. If you can't overlook, then you have to work toward reconciliation. You have to go to the person and gently work through that to reconcile. If that's not working, you then go to negotiation. Okay. And you may have someone, you may have a conciliator sitting there with you to help you work through the differences, not for a compromise as such, but for a right resolution. That's what we're always looking for. Okay, if negotiation's not working, then you may sit through mediation, where there may be two mediators and the two parties, and they're still working to, to find a right resolution. Okay, if that's not effective, and then we start moving more into a legal pattern here of arbitration, and arbitration looks like this. You have the two parties, maybe you've got the two mediators, and you've got an arbitrator. And they listen to the situation, and the arbitrator says, okay, this is the, this is the outcome. This is what we're going to do. And they're legally bound to do that. See, during mediation, the two parties still have the, uh, the ability to agree or disagree with, with whatever, the, whatever they're moving. Once it goes to arbitration legally, the arbitrator says, this is what's going to happen. And you have to say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, whichever the case may be. Okay. Um, then the next one is accountability. And after arbitration, there's got to be an accountability to make sure that what was agreed on actually is done. Okay, so that's, that's how you work through this and become a peacemaker rather than focusing on being a peace faker or a peace breaker. Okay. Uh, I got to, I'm, I'm out of time. I'm out of time, I'm out of time. I had about five more minutes, but we'll do this. Um, it, Cody, if you'll put slide number five up, and we'll, we'll end with this. Every conflict, every single conflict that we, that come into our lives, we have the opportunity to do three things. First of all, to glorify God. Secondly, to serve others. And thirdly, to grow to be more like Christ. Okay. And that's always the goal of working through conflict. Um, any other thoughts or any questions tonight before we close? Okay. Um, quickly, there's no Bible study next week. Uh, the 26th of October, that's our fall break, so there's not going to be a Wednesday night Bible study. There may be youth stuff that's going on, but we're not going to have a Bible study in here. Okay. Um, unless God gives me another week, anybody that wants to shut up, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I really want to do that. Also, I've got, some of you have been taking pictures of the screen, all kinds of stuff, but I've got some brochures here that I'd be glad to share that I got at the conference. And these are just the peacemaking principles. It's something really, I mean, it just slips right on the inside of your Bible and it's got the seven A's, it's got the four G's, it's got the four promises, it's got the slippery slope. I mean, it's just a really neat little tool. Um, and I'll be glad to, to share these with you.
So let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for loving us. Thank you again for being in, in our presence tonight. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading us into the truth of your word. Father, it's my prayer that what was spoken tonight was true to your word. And if there was error, Father, I pray that you, as you can always do, change between my voice and the hearer so that they hear the truth. Father, we trust you in that. Thank you for loving us, Father, and go with us through the rest of this week so that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week, we can be aware and practice and focus on being in that ministry of reconciliation that you've called us to and that you've provided the how-to for us. And we thank you for that. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.